Welcome to Standpoint, a podcast from India discussing global issues of moment. I'm Orgo Sengupta. And I'm Shruti Kapila. Today we discuss universal basic income. The idea of a state-funded universal basic income, or UBI, has gained considerable attention over the last past decade. So we've seen staggering inequality, financial crisis, but also uh, the rolling in of UBI as part of, as it were, the economic survey for the first time in 2016-17. But it is also part of the Congress uh, Party's political manifesto under the scheme of NIAI. UBI has been piloted in several European cities. There was also a pilot in Madhya Pradesh funded by the UNICEF with SEVA. And it's a fairly complex uh, field in itself, alongside the fact that India's own welfare architecture is fairly complex with Manrega, public distribution system, as well as now with Aadhaar and and digital delivery of welfare. We are very lucky and delighted uh, to have Professor Jayati Ghosh, world-renowned economist of JNU, to discuss UBI with us today. Welcome, Jayati. Hi, pleasure to be here. So could we just start you off by asking you, what is UBI? Well, the universal basic income is actually quite an old idea. It can even be traced back to Milton Friedman. He had the notion of a negative income tax, which is basically that you keep paying, you pay an income tax, which is graded, and then when you fall below a certain income, you get money from the state. And he saw this as a substitute for a lot of other kinds of welfare measures. Uh, so there was a big debate about this, mm. in fact, in the mid-20th century in the United States. Mm. And the economist Hyman Minsky actually counterposed to this the right to work. Mm. He actually saw employment guarantee as an alternative with additional uh, provision of universal basic services. And he argued that that provides much more uh, multiplier effects. It's self-selecting. It actually enables you to improve supply. And it provides dignity to the recipients. Yes. So, so in a way, could you sort of say a little bit more than how UBI differs from other such programs or schemes, say the minimum income uh, program in the West, or say even a living wage? So is it a wage-based thing or a work-based thing? Uh, So that's the confusion. What is it guaranteeing? Well, the universal basic income, as is proposed, for example, today in Europe Hmm. by Guy Standing and Eric Olinwright and others, is actually a universal, that is for every citizen, basic, Mm -hmm. which is to say some minimum, which Hmm. is, you know, let's say... Um, half of a minimum wage or something, Mm -hmm. to all, Mm -hmm. irrespective of who they are, what they are, where they work, what they do, Mm -hmm. anything. Mm -hmm. Everybody gets this minimum income. Mm -hmm. That has the advantage of simplicity Mm -hmm. because you're not not targeting, you're not trying to identify beneficiaries and all of that kind of thing. It has the disadvantage that Mm -hmm. if you're really going to do that, you have to tax a huge amount simply to provide a decent amount to every citizen or you provide very small amounts that don't really mean very much. So there's a trade-off there in terms of how much you can tax to enable a living income, hmm. a decent yes, level. That's right. So it's very interesting you said that it's a much older idea. Then what explains its current kind of, as it were, resurgence in policy and politics? I believe that in the West, it's become a big issue really because there's a whole despair about you know the fourth industrial revolution creating joblessness. There's this fear that there's a tsunami coming which is going to deprive everybody of jobs and there will be nothing left to do. And what can you do then with all these people? Let's just give them money and things will sort out. 
I think that's mistaken for two counts. I think firstly, this it's a bogey. This fourth IR stuff, the idea that it will demolish all jobs is really in a way partly a bogey created by capital to scare workers into, you know, avoiding asking for anything. Mm -hmm. Because when you look at it throughout history, technology has displaced workers. Yes. It's nothing new. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, I came here in a car. I could have come in a horse drawn carriage. Right. <laughs> so so right. the, uh, technology has consistently displaced workers. Mm -hmm. The critical thing is what are your macroeconomic and growth policies doing to raise the aggregate level of employment? So when we blame technologies for taking away our jobs, mm. we are making a mistake. We should be blaming economic policies that mm. are not providing the kinds of jobs. Mm. And then people turn around and say, oh, but, you know, machines and uh, will take away what workers do and uh, bots will do yes, what you're AI, supposed to do. all of the AI exactly. kind of stuff. You know, there's so much work, human yes. activity that cannot be replaced by machines, especially in the care and creative sectors. That's correct. That's right. And, and and actually, even in sectors where technology might play a massive role in the future, as in it doesn't necessarily mean that jobs will go away. Maybe jobs might change exactly. from what it is currently. Exactly. But so that's why I think that given the fact that I, I'm not an economist, so with that caveat, that since a lot of the UBI stuff in the West is coming from this place that there is going to be this impending joblessness, so let's give some money. Now, do you think, how does that play alongside a rights-based notion? Because somewhere that goes back to that debate that you were talking about with Minsky saying that it's actually much more empowering for an individual to be given the right to work rather than a negative income tax, which gives him or her money. So do you see that this is a, this is a new version of that older debate playing out? Or do you see it differently as to how it's playing out at this point? No, in time? I think it is very much a new version version of that older debate. Mm. And in fact, I would counterpose what is being offered, let's say, in India today, mm. uh, which I think is antithetical to a rights-based approach. I would counterpose that with a combination of universal basic services, universal right to work and universal pensions. That's right. Mm -hmm. I think, to me, that is really what gives everybody a minimum income guarantee. That's right. That has been so I think this is the this actually raises the big question that if we were to have universal public goods or say, a range of universal public goods. Let's come back to the question of how it's going to be funded. Mm. Because at the end of the day, as you rightly said, it's a question of macroeconomic policy. So where do you think this money is coming from? India is one of the nations which, where actually the income tax that is paid by the rich is very low uh, in, in overall terms. Corporate tax, again, not the highest. So where is this? Do you think it's coming from greater direct taxation or do you think indirect taxation is the way to go? Well, you know, the Congress party has declared that they're going to somehow achieve their... <laughs> Yeah, yeah, without any additional taxation, mm -hmm. which frankly worries me because That's that right. means they're cutting down on other spending. That's right. Our social spending is abysmally low. We right. underprovide basic social services. We need to triple, quadruple mm -hmm. our spending on social services. So that can't go down. It has to go up. We completely underprovide on pensions which is a form of universal basic income. The official government pension is 200 rupees a month, less than $3 a month, okay? Uh, so we have to increase that as well. If you want to also provide a universal work guarantee, uh, we've done some calculations on this in terms of something like a tripling of spending on social services, something like a... a doubling of the money spent on the work guaranteed. In fact, we looked at a tripling 
of the employment guarantee for urban and rural areas and universal pensions for 70% of the adult population. Mm. And we've come up with a figure of something like 8.5% of GDP, additional spending. Now, that seems like a lot, Mm. but you look at the multiplier effects of that spending. You put that money in the system, people will spend it. They will earn more. People will buy from them. You will generate multipliers of, let's say, three or four. Mm. Some of that money will come back as taxes. That's right. So with reasonable assumptions, we were getting maybe additional spending of around 6% of mm-hmm. GDP. Mm-hmm. Right. So, so you would c- compare, say, a prospective UBI unfavorably with, say, something like Manrega, which is already in place, uh, which is a minimum yes. guarantee of I work. Would, I would know. say expanded Manrega, extend it to urban areas, extend it to every adult, mm-hmm. provide universal pensions, expand public services. And PDS? Would this be the... PDS, you know, ideally we need PDS because it serves a different purpose. It serves the the nutritional needs. Mm -hmm. And we have an issue with nutrition. Mm -hmm. As long as we have an issue with nutrition, we continue PDS. When we don't have it, we don't continue it. Right. So actually just coming back to something you said earlier as in terms of providing universal services, uh, the thought that comes to my mind is one about the fact that the economy is becoming entirely contractualized. As in, and we have, and I, I don't have the numbers on this, but as in any study will tell you as to the large amount or large numbers of workers who are in the informal economy at this point of time with no social security whatsoever. And uh, this has been one of the biggest criticisms, for example, of new age technology companies such as Uber, which seem to be providing some amount of employment. And I don't want to single Uber out, but it could be any of the other others, but actually have no social security net whatsoever. Now, where do you see uh, this question of UBI or right to work, whichever way, as in whichever side of that debate one might fall on, vis-a-vis this increasing contractualization of the economy? Yes, I mean, to just to add to it, this has also been the criticism of trade unions against a UBI, that in a way that it, in a way it erodes uh, other rights, uh, uh, and that has, in, I mean, in, in the West, is the trade unions who have sort of, sort of said no. So it's very interesting, we tend to think that the UBI would probably be Criticized. We'll come to that by more right-wing or free market uh, think free market thinking economists. But this also being critical. It's, it's been criticized by the left for for this sort of purpose. So first on the left, you know, why? How do you assess this criticism of lack of social guarantees uh, in in a new technical and contractualized economy, and actually also the weakening of trade unions yeah. wherever you may think. You know, that's that's well, global. Well. I think what you're saying about what's going on in the West is absolutely correct, which Mm. is that it is associated with much greater contractualization and Mm. decline Mm. of any kind of work stability and Mm. workers' rights Mm. in general. In India, it's more complicated because most workers never had these rights. That's right. Right. 95% of our workers have informal contracts. So the ones who are getting, let's say, Uber jobs Mm. never had proper jobs in the first place. So it's not that they're getting in a worse situation. They're kind Mm. of just shifting sectors, if you like. But I think the issue is really that if you want to create a situation where minimum workers' rights are met, you can't just do it by legislating. You actually have to provide the alternative. That's right. And the base of that alternative is public employment. We've seen that with Manrega, that you could get a rise in the rural wage when you provided employment at the minimum wage. 
before that you could legislate that there's a minimum wage and nobody bothered yes that's mm. right that's right so why has we why have we seen a contractualized uh, or a sort of constriction of manrega in the last 5 years well this government is out to kill it uh, the prime minister actually declared that in his first year in office he went to parliament and said this is a testimony to the previous government's failures and he's going to make it redundant mm-hmm. What was that criticism based on? So that now coming to the kind of, as it were, right-wing critiques yes. of both Manrega but also UBI. Well, the right-wing critique of Manrega has always been that it's a huge waste of money, it's massive corruption, etc., etc. Okay, uh, it's not a big waste of money. The total spending on the highest ever spending on Manrega was zero point four one percent of GDP in two thousand nine ten. So that's not a lot, right? It's really tiny. Uh, subsequently. It's come down to the point that last year it was zero point two three percent. I mean, right. minuscule, mm. tiny mm. amounts. Okay, mm. yes, in some states there is some corruption and so on, but it's nothing compared to what's going on elsewhere. And in fact, the fa- it's been denied funds. It's been uh, state councils are not getting the money. They're not able to pay the wages. Workers and paid delayed wages. They're killing it. by denying it money why would that be the case when you actually whether we have official statistics or not but we there is a kind of common consensus that this uh, there is a joblessness crisis in india as well right that this is jobless growth whatever that growth may be or whatever the number might be so in that sense it seems kind of curious and counterintuitive to not to want to Uh, give work even the colonial i mean i was thinking yeah. reminded of my kind of historical yeah. examples of famine relief in the 19th century where people were given work uh, you know uh, as part of relief and that was also criticized for different reasons not because it was expensive but that people were too too weak to work you know <laughs> so yeah. so so now i'm just curious how we you know what the kind of rationale might be you that's know that's that's a very good question shruti it boggles my mind as well why would a government even elections withhold money on an employment guarantee thing which definitely when there's a drought in eight states mm-hmm. where you know people are begging for work where it's desperate why would you not do it i i don't have an answer to that but it's interesting you raise the colonial analogy yes. because this government has been in some ways more insensitive than the colonial government you look at debt relief for example the colonial debt commissions had a rule that the interest payment cannot exceed the principal you don't find any such thing going on right now so that's what makes me consider that this is actually these are deeply held convictions because they're not even kind of you know the government is not making those popular uh, you know responses right so what would be that conviction what is what is it that that a kind of manrega mindset uh, do to you know well look for I the mean, opposition like what would be yeah. the counter argument against look it? i mean there is the stated conviction which yes. is that you know as i mentioned yes, all of those things expensive. but i if i if i had to guess what the real reason would be yes. my my reading of it is that it's basically reflects greater power of workers greater bargaining power of workers which they don't like right. farmers don't like the fact that they have to pay near minimum wages yes it's still yes. not the actual min- but mm. nearer the minimum mm. wages which mm. is like you know 30 40% increase mm. from what they were paying mm. uh, construction companies in the cities don't like the fact that they have to pay migrant workers more that's right and so on so there's a backlash from the employer side but let's look at the let's look at it in a, another context of the of india's federal polity mm. because i think that also is a is a relevant question uh, post the finance commission the 14th finance commission's devolution of 42% uh, 
uh, two state governments. As in, do you think that there is a change in the nature in the last five years or maybe even sort of longer that there is an increasing centralization of the of economic functions and power. So with the centrally sponsored schemes, as in right at the outs, as in for the planning commission, now actually done by the Ministry of Finance and Manrega being one of the larger ones, as in that there was a great amount of power that was held by the center. And what is that what has that done uh, to schemes such as Manrega in terms of the fact that uh, the center now seems to be saying that uh, now you've got 42 percent and now some of this needs to be done by the states? Unfortunately, the Finance Commission devolution, uh, which was based on the idea that the centre would keep the level of the centrally sponsored schemes, mm. has been completely distorted. They've just reduced the amount that they transferred to states through the schemes That's massively. Right. Yes, And so the states have actually ended up no better off. In I fact, see. some states are actually worse off. But I think worse than that, the centralization has also expressed itself in a political misuse of how the centrally sponsored scheme money is allocated. To take the example of Manrega, the state of Tripura was the best performing state. It used to give 95 days of employment. It continuously got prizes for the best functioning in Manrega, etc. Allocations to Tripura were cut to one third and then 20% of the level. And this this is after the chief minister has come and done dharna in the state capital in the in the Delhi mm -hmm. outside parliament mm -hmm. when you know endless letters have been written pleading for what is right their due mm -hmm. to be transferred. So, uh, yeah. but they were systematically cut, and it now appears that was part of a broader political. So, design. what happens to these centrally sponsored schemes now post the planning commission? Because there does seem to be some amount of. Uh, lack of clarity because there is no organization and it was never meant to be given by the Ministry of Finance in the Union of India. There was always these schemes which are essentially going to be delivered by the state governments but because of our way in which we collect our taxes the union had more money and so was giving it. But it was always meant to be done by this neutral arbiter kind of body whereas now you don't have that. The Finance Commission doesn't go into that issue or at least the 14th didn't. They made that assumption as you rightly said. So what happens to these schemes? As in the, because as I can see as in logically there are three options as in one is the union gives it through the Ministry of Finance, two is we give it to the Finance Commission, or three we disband it. As in these are these seem to be the three ways in which, or or we fourth maybe we can have another body which can do something like this. Yeah. You know, I believe that any of the three options you suggest would be utter disasters for mm. a country as diverse mm. and uh, mm. you know as federal as India. Mm. And if you try and impose that kind of centralization. Mm. I, the country would break up, actually. It would be mm. a dis complete disaster. Mm. So I think what's important is to think of that fourth option. And the mm. fourth option would be going back to something uh, which underlay the idea of the Planning Commission, which is the Interstate Council. I mm -hmm. see. Yeah, it's a constitutional, right. the, the, it's a constitutional, constitutional body, body, Exactly. Yeah. So mm. you see, the Planning Commission doesn't exist in the Constitution, yeah, but the right. Interstate Council does. That's right. So if you actually get a government at the centre, which is, mm. let's say, a coalition, and mm. which requires regional parties to mm. be part of it. You might get a revival of that. That's right. Which would actually enable a much more federal approach to expenditure. That's right. Because I think it would do... As in, it would, it's perhaps the Interstate Council is perhaps the most moribund body that exists, constitutional body that exists. And let's and face it, it was killed even in the previous government. Yeah, it's been right. killed for a while. That's <laughs> yes. I think it has meetings yes. once every 20 years or yeah. some such right. thing that's like right. that. Yeah, yeah right. that's right. So to return again back to UBI in that case, I mean, if Manrega in, and public employment uh, guarantee schemes you think are the best way forward, then would you think that UBI is post-ideological, as people are saying, that this is, seems to be like a technical fix to a right 
rising problem of inequality across the world? I wouldn't say it's post-ideological. Right. I think it reflects, I mean, uh, to go back to the origins, Milton yes. Friedman was very clear in his ideological right. leanings. Yes, of course, yes. of course. I think this but in, is... today, in today's discourse, I mean, the fact that the Congress Party's manifesto, which is widely being uh, criticized by its critics for being left-leaning, for giving nyai, you know, for offering nyai. And so, of course, there's confusion. And, of yeah. course, on the other side, the economic survey and Arvind Subramanian so it seems very hard to kind of assess the ideological um, value of UBI in some ways. Well, you know, in India, it's not UBI because it's not universal. It's targeted, it's targeted right. and yes. it's not a basic income. It's, you know, and, and yeah. the targeting itself raises a huge host of issues. Yes. How will you identify the families, the problems of exclusion and unjustified inclusion and, and so right. on and so forth? All of them are huge. But I think, you know, the idea of putting money in the hands of the poor is mm. not a bad idea. Right. Because today in India, we have so much inadequate demand. It's a it's mm. a massively mm. demand-constrained economy. Mm. So putting money in the hands of the poor will have the multiplier effects that I was mm. talking about That's earlier. Right. That's right. So in that sense, you would welcome it. Yes. Of course, it is ridden with all these other problems. And that money would be better spent, as I said, on this combination. If you mm. want to spend that money, 72,000 crore, whatever, mm. spend it on universal pensions. That's right. such a straightforward thing. You identify, I mean, it's easy to identify right. older people. Mm. Right, 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 right. And we have nothing in the form of social security for most of our citizens. Right. So can, can to broaden it still further, I mean, India's welfare programs, which are, say, economic-based, based on money like the Swan Manrega and so on, uh, sit sort of at odds with the more robust rights-based discourse, which is based on sort of social inequality, say, affirmative action uh, and, and so on. And so in a way, I mean, we have two-pronged discussions on social justice in, in, in the country, though they, the twain never seems to meet. Uh, so I was wondering how you might want to think a little bit about, would you then argue that a right to work should be enshrined in like, should be added to our corpus of rights? Is that the way forward, the way it was done for, say, information, for food and, and so on? In a way, that's already implicit, but yes, it should certainly be done. Mm. I believe very firmly that we should extend the right to work uh, to urban areas mm -hmm. and to every adult mm -hmm. rather than every household. Yes. Yes. Uh, how it works out, there are all kinds of details mm -hmm. and all of that mm -hmm. kind of thing. But the thing about a rights-based approach is mm -hmm. that it is universal in nature. Right. And that's very, very important mm -hmm. because all the other, in a context which is as socially, regionally, culturally, ethnically and caste-wise divided, mm -hmm. when you do targeting you actually there's a hornet's nest of issues mm -hmm. that comes up mm -hmm. and you actually tend to increase social divisions mm -hmm. so i firmly believe that there's a very strong case to be made for a universal approach to universal basic services right. provided by the public right. to universal right to work to universal pensions that's right and uh, direct cash transfers according to pilots seem to favor uh, singularly women why would that be because the examples that have been given are all of when you give it to the women in the household. So, <laughs> so we actually don't know. The, we actually don't know. You yeah. mean the real comparative story? And and besides which, I mean, you know, you do one village where you give them extra money, and then the neighboring village you don't give them money. And guess what? The people in the village who got the money are happier. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. Um, 
So um, one final point, how would you sort of su suggest uh, a better uh, set of delivery programs for India's welfare program? Of course, a digital, with the whole set of digital uh, world coming into, as it were, the government and the bureaucratic side of things, including Aadhaar. How would you sort of, you know, as you said, if it, it, targeting is a problem. And so one answer that has been given is, well, we should have universal registration. And then, you know, and that takes us directly to the contentions of Aadhaar. So how would you, in a way, then navigate this difficulty of targeting versus uh, versus the contentions around, say, Aadhaar. Okay, I think the first point is that, you know, you have to get away from the notion that you, there's a technology fix to what is essentially a problem of social relations. Mm -hmm. Correct. And uh, what we find across the country is that it is issues of power imbalance that generate both the corruption and the exclusion and the unjustified inclusion and all of those issues, right? So... To solve those problems, technology cannot help you. You have to address the social relations and you have to address accountability mechanisms. We have found Aadhaar has proved to be, I believe, a disaster for many of the most poor and marginalized people who cannot access their food rations. We've had at least 50 starvation deaths because of that. We've had any number of terrible stories resulting. And we find that corruption continues because, you know, the ration dealers can seed the Aadhaar cards and keep doing what they like anyway. So that problem is not solved. So what would those accountability mechanisms look like? Yes. As in whether and with other, or without Aadhaar. Yeah, uh, yeah. Okay. So there are many. In yeah. fact, there mm. are some ways in which you can use technology to further your accountability mm. mechanisms. That's right. For example, the government of Chhattisgarh got in a system of weighing the trucks carrying the food rations at every point mm -hmm. and automatic transmission of that weighing value mm -hmm. to a, some you know, local mm. collection point. Sure. That dramatically reduced the leakages, some 30% yes. reduction in leakages, okay? And that's a very simple thing, which doesn't infringe on anyone's privacy, doesn't, you know, deny them respect, doesn't do anything, okay? So you can use technology also, but particularly there has, to, the only way you can ensure accountability is complete transparency. So in fact, whatever amount, let's say a ration dealer gets has to be up there, which days he's getting it has to be not just on a website, but out there posted on a piece of paper in the village that everyone can see. Whatever he has distributed to each person at each day must mm. be marked, must right. be known. So, yes. A, a bit like the Narega website tells yes. you that by on a daily basis, real time, right. how much the wages have been paid. Right, right. So that kind of thing is a very important way of assuring accountability. So one last question. If you were made finance minister, one can't help asking you that. Uh, what would you sort of say would be your big ticket policy interventions, particularly around joblessness and also actually a somewhat stagnant and sluggish growth rate? As I said, the big problem in the economy today is inadequate demand. So something definitely to jumpstart demand. And that would imply public spending public spending on social services, public spending on employment guarantee and on all the things I've mentioned, a package for small, medium and m micro enterprises who have been completely denied of institutional credit and all kinds of other things. So a package specifically for them, that's where 85% of employment in the country is anyway. Okay. And to raise the resources for this, get rid of the tax exemptions. Mm. Right. 
Okay. <laughs> that's, that's great. So yes. I think the lessons are clear. Better public spending than UBI, but better UBI than nothing else. Yeah. Okay. Thanks very much. Thanks very much, Jayati, for for being with us today, and uh, look forward to future episodes of Standpoint. Do join us for them. Thanks very much. Thank, Thank you. you.